0: Why do bad things happen to good people? Why must good people suffer? It may be one of the hardest concepts to really understand in the human experience. I think it was 15 years ago when my friend Fraser died. He was a good guy. We weren't overly close, you know, but I felt we had a common respect and regard for each other. I would see him from time to time in passing. Never often and rarely planned. He had recently met a girl and took a great interest in her. I think her name was Sarah. They quickly fell deeply in love and became engaged soon after. I'll never forget that night cool and clear without a cloud in sight. Stars lit the sky as if they were streetlights. They had been driving through a winding mountain pass when all of a sudden the car somehow spun out of control and crashed. I never found out the details of the physics of it all. But that night, he died. The injuries he sustained were far more than his body could bear. From time to time, I've reflected on him and Sarah. They always come to mind whenever the idea of good people facing devastating circumstances comes up. She made it out of the car okay, and from what I heard, hardly had a scratch on her. He spent his last moments in her arms. I'm sure he suffered to an extent right before he died. The real suffering that makes my heart sink is thinking about the suffering that she felt that night. Not just that night, but most likely every day since. Why does God give and then take away She sounded like a really good person. I never met her, but why did she have to suffer so much?
1: My friend has Lyme's disease, and it's not the worst thing in the world, but I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. He suffers from flu-like symptoms and chronic fatigue most days. It's cost him his job, his livelihood, and on the darkest of days, it costs him his dignity. As a friend who can only observe and listen, it's the stuff that makes you cry. And we tried everything in our church from prayer to prophecy to fasting to bringing in those, as the Apostle Paul talks about, who have gifts of healing? And why does it seem that God heals this person, but not that one? And why do bad things happen to good people? With that, let's bring up a clip from Stephen Fry, the British comedian and actor.
0: Suppose what Oscar believed in as he died, in spite of your protestations, suppose it's all true, Mm. and you walk up to the pearly gates and you are confronted by God. What will Stephen Fry say to him, her, or it? I will basically, what's known as theodicy. I think, I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say.
1: So much for the British being reserved. Let's pray together as we move into this subject matter this morning. God, we invite you uh, and we pray that you invite us to summon our hearts and our minds to this moment. I pray that you would give comfort right now where there's hurting, I pray that you would give clarity or at least faith where there's cynicism and doubt, and that we would, as a people, know that you are with us above all. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to be back this morning. Um, my name's is AJ, as, as Clay said, and I think there are two people in this room. The first type of person, when it comes to this question, why, God, do bad things happen to good people? Or really, why, God, do bad things happen if you are a good God? think is even a better way of stating the question. The two people in this room this morning are, are these two people. There are those of you asking, number one, why God at a meta level? A 30,000 foot view. In other words, why God are, Syria, are, are Syrian refugees walking all over the face of Europe right now? Why would that happen? Why world hunger, God? Why Ebola outbreaks, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And then the other camp for those in this room are those who are feeling this question at a personal level. Why, God, does my child have cancer? Why the loss of this job? Why the betrayal from someone that I felt I could trust? So there's a meta-thinking person in this room. And then there's a a micro, ground-level, feeling person in this room who is sifting through this question. And I can assure you that this topic is way too mysterious to cover in 30 minutes, but I want to say two things today that I think will better put this question into context for us. So let me begin with this word, story. Story. If nothing else happens in this morning in terms of our minds being shaped and our hearts beginning to understand what this question is about, we have to understand story. Everyone lives from story. In other words, conviction, if you've heard that word, conviction is that voice in you that signals when you are betraying the story that you claim to live from. That's what that's all conviction is. I know it has this like crazy connotation, but all conviction is, is when something inside you says, I I believe I'm living this story, but I'm I'm actually living outside of what I claim to believe. Does that make sense? And so the question is, what story are you living from? The Muslims have a story. The Jewish people have a story, Christians have a story, secular humanism has a story. The American dream is a story that many live from. Postmodern society or late modernism, if that's what you want to call it, it is the vision that says there is no grand meta story that binds all this world together. We just sort of live out these micro stories, and, and it's right as long as it doesn't harm anyone in your path. I love what N.T. Wright says, who's a New Testament theologian. He says, a story is actually the best way of talking about the world the way it actually is. And I'm going to tie this in so that you understand why I would bring this up when it comes to the question of why bad things happen. Let me pull up an image behind me, and I want to ask you something. Is this an old lady, or is this a young woman, right? Right? Now, this has been used to talk about relativism in the past, and that's not what I'm using it for this morning. What I mean to use it for is that we each have an opinion about what is happening in this scene. We each have a sort of vantage point as to what we think is going on in this story. And as it turns out, story is the lens through which each of us see the world, whether we realize it or not. We have a story out there that we're trying to live into. And when things disrupt that, it leads to all sorts of crises, all sorts of questions, all sorts of doubts, all sorts of scrambling to say, what story am I really living in? Can I trust that story? Is that the story that's going to lead me toward fulfillment or not? And I think this image helps explain why we have so many questions about the question before us. Why, God, do bad things happen to good people? You know, atheists challenge Christians, and perhaps some of you in this room came this morning, and I would say this is a really safe space at Renaissance Church, at least has been my experience, for no matter what your belief system is, to come in and to be on a journey about asking good questions, being a community with people that are asking similar questions without feeling judged, feeling like there's space to ask really good questions. And atheists, I think, challenge Christians, and they say things like this, if the world as we know it was created by a a good God, why would bad things happen? And I think that's an interesting argument, but I would say this, Christians can equally challenge atheists by saying if the world as we know it was created through the process of survival of the fittest, Why should we expect good to happen at all? In fact, where did we actually derive a a concept or a conception of what good is in the first place if there is no standard of goodness? It's all just survival of the fittest. Micro-narratives do what's best for you. So my hope is to persuade you in probably now 20 minutes or less that the biblical story is the most truthful story. My hope is to persuade you that the biblical story is actually the most comprehensive story. And my hope is to persuade you that the biblical story is the most hopeful story to this question. So why do bad things happen to good people? Let's talk about a story of freedom. I don't know what your perspective of the scripture is, your perspective of Christianity, your perspective of religion in general, but I would say this, that we have to begin by talking about a story of freedom when it comes to why do bad things happen. Let's sort of Google out just a little bit the map and take a wide angle lens for a moment. And let's talk about a story of freedom because the Bible opens up with a book called Genesis, which means beginnings. It means beginnings. And in the beginning... The story God was writing was a story of freedom. It's a story of what's called dominion. That God said something similar as, As my image bearers, humans, the ones who resemble me most on earth, take care of everything I've given you in the world. You have dominion. You have reign. You are the top of the pole, not so that you can crush everything under you, but so you can steward, so you can care, so you can move toward work that's meaningful and take my creation forward. It's a story of freedom. It's a story of dominion, but it's also a story of choice. In other words... When God says to the humans, don't eat from this tree, some of you would say that seems rather arbitrary and it may be so. But I want to suggest the reason that is in Scripture is because I believe what God was doing was saying the reason I'm giving you this tree is so you know you are free and not robots. That every time you look at this tree, you're going to be confronted with the fact that you have radical freedom and you can say yes, or you can say no, and it's going to constantly remind you that I've given you free reign in this world, and it's going to remind you that you are not robots. It appears to me this is what Genesis is saying. It appears that God prefers a creation who is empowered to freely choose or reject him over robots who have no choice. I know some of you question and wonder, does this scene really happen? Is this really like what I should believe? Was this literal? Whether you think it's literal or not, I think it still tells the story that God's original intent for the human race was to live a story of freedom and to live a story of choice and not to be robots. Mark Sayers, the culturalist, says this, God allows humans and angels the terrible liberty of free will, at least in the beginning. This allowance creates the possibility of chaos and the potential of evil. Thus, fittingly, an act of destruction occurs. We don't get three chapters into the scripture where we realized that the human species utilizes freedom for its own purposes, exploits And begins to utilize all of the freedom to take the culture forward and uses it in its own hands for its own agenda. And the claim this morning that I would say is twofold. The first is this, that evil, the existence of evil and despair, and I'll put this behind me, the existence of evil and despair is not evidence against the failed project of God, but of our inability to use our freedom as God intended. All of the consequences that have come from a perfect world that was given to people to run, to steward, to take forward, and the way we utilize that freedom over and over again to exploit it for our own purposes has led to a litany of effect that riddles through our universe. Another claim I would say is that the fact that evil exists and that bad things happen is not a case against the existence or the goodness of God. It's a case for the necessity for redemption. But back to, back to the lady of the old woman, it all matters how you see the story you're living in. Let me say this again, because I think this bears repeating. The fact that evil exists and that bad things happen is not a case against the existence or the goodness of God. It's a case for the necessity of redemption. So let me ask you this question. What story are you living from? Because when you begin to encounter things in life that are disruptive to your hopes and your dreams, that matters. how The story that you think you are living from, it matters how you will react, where you will find hope, where you will find despair. It matters completely to how you live. And this is why I believe the biblical story is the most helpful of all Stories because it explains what jesus came to accomplish jesus as scripture tells us fulfills a creation narrative that went bad because of human freedom and what jesus does in scripture is he becomes a messiah who took on the pain of the world and was risen from the dead modeling out what will happen eventually to all who trust in him does that make sense That what Jesus comes is to give us a preview of our future. What's happening in the resurrection is God saying, see how I'm making all things new in this one that you put to death, who is my Messiah, my chosen, my son. That is the future of all who trust in him. And so that matters. That in the midst of our despair, here's what I would suggest this morning. We don't need a God to criticize because of bad things. We need a God who has the power to make all things new. That's what we really need. I know sometimes it just feels right, it feels good, it feels like we need some sort of object to blame. I don't think at the depths of our despair we need a God to criticize. What we need is a God who is willing and able to make all things new. Isn't that, if you've read the story of Job, isn't that what Job is all about? This terrible despair that happened over the course of time. But in the end, God somehow made it new, and I can't explain it, and it's mysterious, but somehow actually made it better than what it originally was for him. Which begs the question, if Jesus came to bring us this newness, this resurrection, this sort of renewal, then where is God? And why do I still suffer? Why do I still suffer? If Jesus came to do all these things, and Jesus was risen from the dead, Why am I still living in the grave? Why do I still experience so much decay, so much despair, so much in my life that causes me to question the goodness of God? I think it's a fair question. I think we have before us not just a story, not just a story of freedom, but we also have a story of length. A story of length. The mentalist. Law and order. Foyle's War—it's one of the favorites in my household. Anyone watch Foyle's War? It's like nobody watches. It's a great series. Foyle's War is fantastic. What do these stories have in common? Anyone? Each of these stories wrap up at the end of every episode. All of them—they all find a conclusion by the end, within like you know 45 minutes to an hour and a half. They all wrap their conclusion. The villain is caught. Justice is served. Full confession in a matter of minutes. This drives a lawyer crazy watching these shows. We're like, come on, when does anyone actually plead guilty, right? Full confession. That they all find closure within the end of the episode? And I think this sort of paradigm that we see, all these kinds of shows, they best illustrate our relationship to pain. That if you're anything like me, we want quick resolution. We want sort of... Easy answers. We want minimal suffering. And I get it, I'm totally with you in that. And in a world of instant downloads, of easy credits, of fast food, we simply are not conditioned to wait, to pray, to endure the long road called life, which is often, as many of us could attest, not easy. Nor does it always end happily in our moments in certain seasons. I love what Ronald Rollheiser says, the Catholic scholar. He says, in many ways, we no longer know how to hold suffering. And I think it's because of the worldview in which we're constantly living in. One of easy answers, one of quick downloads, one of fast food, one of minimal. Like, we want easy detours in life. We're not actually equipped in our time to hold suffering. To hold the tension of that. And sometimes, I think sometimes we're tempted to think that perhaps this bad thing happening in my life is because God is angry with me. Or perhaps this is happening in my life because God isn't, isn't he's sort of absent from this world. Maybe he's off doing other things in the, in the polyverse or universe or whatever that is. Or maybe like Stephen Fry, maybe God is a figment of my imagination. Maybe God is non-existent altogether, And I would simply say this this morning. If you wrestle with this question, why God? You are not alone. One of the things I love about Scripture, I love about Scripture is that Scripture doesn't tidy things up quickly. You see narratives of people's lives that wrestled, that struggled, that failed. And God having to move in to redeem, to restore, to renew. I love the honesty of Scripture And so I would just say, if you wrestle with this question, you're not alone. And I think more than anything, what I love about Renaissance and what I think Renaissance could teach to the future of the church is the church needs to be a place where we can bring our questions, we can bring our concerns, we can bring our doubts, and we can wrestle with them over the long road in community through this journey called life. Time and again, the writers of the Bible address this question. Peter, to the churches scattered, says this, all across the Roman Empire, who were being fed the lions, by the way. This is what he says, 1 Peter 5, and the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast, right? Paul says to the Romans, I consider that our present sufferings, whatever they are, they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Do you see? Paul's creating a vision to have a long view. Paul says later to the Corinthians to the, in his the sec, second work in chapter 4, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I love even what the psalmist says, The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. What you see is that Scripture, over and against our culture, presents this long view toward life. If you're going to hold your faith in tension, if you're going to hold it in the tension of life, and all of the disruptions that will come along your journey, we have to have a long view. Otherwise, all of these disruptions will utterly cause us to stumble. And they will utterly cause us to question what it is that we believe, in the story that we're living in. So let me finish this morning by telling you a story that I think puts all this together. It's a story for me the first time I realized this. It was, it was like someone had turned the light on about this question in my life. Any World War II history buffs in here? Anyone? Look? We got one. Any other World War II? history? One in the back? Yeah, where was, when I asked that question, yeah, yeah I am. I, that's like a pride, pride question. World, World War II and one history buffs, like they let you know they're here. And, uh, and they do the hard work, quite frankly. It's a very interesting study of history. But I want you to consider something. I'm going to pull up a chart behind me. I want you to consider Stalingrad. Stalingrad happened in the years of 1942 and 1943. And since Stalingrad, after Stalingrad, both the Allied or the ones that were allied on our, on our side, on the, the Brits, the Americans, others who came and were allied against the German forces and even the Russians at this point, both the Allied and the German armies, they knew after Stalingrad, which was fairly early, they knew that the war was already decided. Now, some would say that's ridiculous because the war didn't end until later but they knew after Stalingrad. And this is according to Jacques Ellul, who is an incredible sociologist out of Bordeaux. And he says, after Stalingrad, both the Allied and German armies, everyone involved, they knew that the war was already decided. But the troops and the populations of the occupied countries, they had no way of knowing it. They had no way of knowing that after Stalingrad, the war was actually already decided. The period of the bloodiest struggle to the resistance movement This period right here in between 1942 and 1945, it actually increased in in death. You saw mass exterminations. You saw the bloodiest wars. They happened after Stalingrad. The, The resistance movement after 1943, this is the period where it was the most bloody. Thus, from an individual standpoint, the last year of the war was undeniably the most dangerous and the most threatening. So here's what we're saying. For those who are really understanding how war works, the war was over at Stalingrad. But for everyone else, it appeared that everything was still up in the air, that it wasn't decided. The defeated powers were still able to carry off temporary tactical maneuvers that had all the appearance of victories. So the January 1945 offensive at Strasbourg It seemed to be the decisive moment of the war. But from an overall strategic point of view, the war had already been won. It had already been decided in 1942 and 1943. All that was left was a massive cleanup operation and the enemy's recognition of their defeat. Even the German generals, Ilil says, even the German generals knew that the war was already lost. In early 1943, Hitler and his Nazi spirit of war, they just refused to recognize the fact. Does that make sense? What I'm saying is this. That 2,000 years ago, the Messiah takes all the pain of the world upon himself, and the war was decided. And Christ is victor. And like the concept of World War II from, from Stalingrad to Strasbourg, we too are in one massive giant cleanup operation where there is blood and there is mess and there is tragedy and there is, there is all of these things happening which seems to say, where is God? Is God going to come through? Does God even exist? And I think this is the best way to talk about the moment that we are in. At the heart of the universe is the suffering of God on the cross. The suffering of God on the cross is the most decisive turning point in human history by which we know that we're not alone, by which we know that God has not left us, and that God is not indifferent to our pain. It's just that God is writing a long story that in the end, he will make all things new. And what's required is to trust that there is an author, and that that author happens to also be the Redeemer. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, listen, we've heard from Paul, we've heard from Peter, we've heard from the psalmist, we've heard from Jockaloole, whoever that guy is, but what does Jesus have to say about this question? Again, the words of N.T. Wright. Jesus doesn't give an explanation for the pain and sorrow of the world. He comes where the pain is most acute and takes it upon himself. Jesus doesn't explain why there is suffering, illness, and death in the world. He brings healing and hope. He doesn't allow the problem of evil to be the subject of a seminar. He allows evil, which I would say is the misuse of human freedom, to do its worst in him. He exhausts it. He drains its power and emerges with new life. The resurrection says this clearly. But what about the end of the story? the good news about what has happened looks ahead to the good news about what will happen. The same God who made the world in the first place will restore and renew it in the end. Or as Paul to the Christians in Rome says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the present sufferings of this time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And so I would simply say this I just want to invite the band to come forward as we move into prayer. God is writing a story and will miraculously make it all right in the end. And so, back to my friend who suffers from Lyme. If you have received the breakthrough that you are looking to heal your pain, Like God miraculously broke through. Cancer was healed. The doctors found the answer. The conclusion happened. The relationship was restored. All of these things that we would see as a breakthrough to our pain, I rejoice with you because that can and does happen. But if you haven't, and you're in the midst of pain this morning, here's what I know. At the core of the human experience, our greatest fear isn't discovering a God who doesn't heal all of our pain in an instant. I know maybe that's what you think the greatest fear is. It's not actually discovering a God who doesn't heal all of our pain on our timeline. I think our greatest fear is discovering a God who is indifferent to our greatest pain. I can stomach a God who decides not to heal every wound for one reason or another, at least for the time being. But what I can't stomach is a God who doesn't care one way or another. And what the coming of God in the person of Jesus tells us, if anything, is that God indeed does care and is with us. And that makes all the difference. At least it does for me. And I hope it does for you too. Let's pray. God, this morning we bring ourselves to you. Would you heal us and give us a long view of life, a long view of the story you're writing that weaves together all of human history. May we trust you in our greatest pain. And we thank you for giving us freedom to question, to cry, to doubt, you're not phased by these things, but you continue to be present. You continue to be with us. You continue to give us grace and compassion. So this morning, may we experience that in the midst of our pain and pray into the darkness no matter where we are. In the name of Jesus.